Hey there, and welcome back to the Cory Doctorow podcast. I don't have a lot of work travel on this summer, not a lot of places where you can catch me, but I will be doing a live keynote for A New Hope, that's the 2600 conference on July the 24th. They're holding the conference in Long Island. I will be remote, unfortunately, from Los Angeles because of some family contradictions. I'm going to go away with my family on vacation for a couple of weeks. And boy, do I ever need it. We had some friends around last night. My old pal, Rail Dornfest, who used to be the CTO of O'Reilly, made a wonderful blogging tool called Blossom and founded the Emerging Technologies Conference and the P2P Conference. And I served on his committee with him. He's really a dear old pal. He and his daughter were here as part of an annual parent trip that they take together in a kitted out van doing hashtag van life. It really drove home for me just how much I miss having holidays with my family. We're going to be seeing my parents and my brother's kids, and it's really going to be an absolutely lovely thing to do. And I'm going to take this trip for the first time as a U.S. citizen, because tomorrow, Monday, the 27th of July, I'm being sworn in as a U.S. citizen. And you may be asking yourself, as some people have, why anyone would become a U.S. citizen in the wake of things like the Supreme Court decision on Roe v. Wade and on gun rights. And I say to you, that is the reason to become a U.S. citizen, that in a country where the rule of law is becoming ever more tenuous, that having the rights of a citizen is really important. You know, as someone who is here on a green card, on so-called permanent residence during the Trump Muslim ban, I was very alarmed to see people situated similar to me, long-term permanent residents of the United States with a green card arriving, and due to no suspicion other than their faith or country of origin being put in immigration detention and then illegally told that they were not entitled to see immigration counsel until they surrendered their green cards and their right to reside here. There is a world of difference between being a U.S. citizen and a permanent resident of the United States, and it's all good stuff. All the bad stuff of being a U.S. resident is also part of being a U.S. citizen and vice versa. The same messed up legal system, the same problems with accountability, the same inequality, all of those accrue to everyone who lives here, whether or not they're a citizen. The difference is that citizens have rights. That, you know, if I go to a cannabis dispensary and buy some cannabis, which is legal in the state that I live in, but not federally legal, and I meet a federal law enforcement officer, and they give me a misdemeanor ticket for simple possession, as a citizen, that means I pay a fine. As a non-citizen, it means I could be deported, lose my home, lose my family unless they wanted to follow me, lose everything we've worked for and the life we've built for here. I know that's a fairly trivial example, but a more significant one is being charged with a misdemeanor after participating in a protest over Roe v. Wade. I have been going to protests for abortion rights since I was in the womb. When I was five years old, they told me I would march at my Aunt Heather and Uncle Marty's wedding and asked me if I knew how to march, and I mimed carrying a placard and walked around in circles shouting, not the church and not the state, women must control their fate. This issue means a lot to me, and not having the same suite of rights if a protest goes sour that I would if I'm a citizen has stayed my hand somewhat, kept me at home a little, not just over this struggle, but over others. And so, yeah, you betcha, I am eager to become a citizen, and I will become a citizen on Monday. Well, that's all a little heavy, so maybe let's talk about some writing stuff before we get to the reading. 
Many of you have been following Red Team Blues. This is the first volume in a trilogy, or what may end up being a series, about a crime-fighting forensic accountant in Silicon Valley who runs down finance scams. That book just got a new publication date, March of 2023, and a rough cover by Will Stela, who did the new covers for all of my books, as well as the cover for Walk Away and the Little Brother Homeland reissue and Radicalized and Attack Surface. Will is one of the best cover designers in the world. I love his work. And this cover, which I can't show you just yet, is amazing. Really everything I'd hoped for. Boy, I just love his work. I'm so excited about this. I've also been doing some fun reading lately. As I swim for my physiotherapy, I've been listening to audiobooks on my underwater MP3 player, and I ran out of new releases I wanted to read. I try to focus on new releases so that I can help writers launch their new books, especially in these difficult times when it's a real challenge. But every now and again, I can't find a new release audiobook I want to listen to. And so I go back and I find a book that I missed the first time around. And in this case, I chose Naomi Novik's books about dragons. It's not my normal kind of thing. They're uh, alternate histories set during the Napoleonic Wars in which dragons are a thing and the Napoleonic Wars get an air force of dragons. And it's about the geopolitics of dragons. These are not my normal cup of tea. I'm not a military fiction reader. I'm not much of a fantasy reader. I'm especially not much of a heroic or high fantasy reader who reads the kind of books that have dragons in them. And by every rights, these should not be books I'm enjoying. And so speaking as someone who's absolutely not the target audience for them, I'm here to tell you that they are astoundingly good books. I am two books into the series now. There are nine in total. There's no question in my mind that I'm going to finish it. Boy, howdy are these amazing books. I've admired Naomi Novik's work for many years. She was one of the founders of Archive of Our Own, or AO3, and helped found the nonprofit, the Participatory Culture Foundation, that advocates for AO3 and also for the rights of fanfic authors and remixers all over the world. And so I suspected I would like her fiction, but I have to admit I was a little afraid I wouldn't, because the last thing you want is to have someone whose professional work that isn't fiction you admire and whose company you enjoy, but whose work you don't makes for some awkward conversations. And thankfully, there is no such awkwardness. Naomi Novik is a spectacular writer, and this series is so good. It starts with a book called His Majesty's Dragon, and I could not recommend it to you more highly. If you are looking for a series of books to relax with all summer long and just kind of dive into, this is a great choice. I ran into Werner Vinge, a great science fiction writer, some years ago and asked him how he was doing. We're old friends. And he said, oh, this summer has been magical. I just discovered Terry Pratchett. And I've spent the summer reading Terry Pratchett novels, something I haven't done at this clip since I was a teenager, because since then I've read books as they came out, not books that were already out there in the world, not these kind of binge reads. This is something you can do with Novik. It is absolutely worth your time, even if you're not into military history or dragons or any of that stuff. I have also been reading another great novel. This one is a forthcoming novel. I'm reading it in hard copy. Ruthanna Emrys' debut, a book called A Half-Built Garden, which is coming out in a couple of weeks. Just getting to it now. I took it to the beach yesterday. We went to Malibu yesterday for a morning on the beach. And now I'm halfway through it, and I can't put it down. And I can't recommend it highly enough. So that book is called A Half-Built Garden by Ruthanna Emrys. It's a first contact novel set in a period in which it looks like maybe we've resolved the climate emergency, and it's a great combination of things. 
Well, now on to this week's reading. This week's reading is a medium column called Reasonable Agreement, and it's a column that I wrote, almost wrote actually, several times, finally wrote. And it's a column that I was always reminded to write every time I got into a contract negotiation with a new editor, for reasons that you'll soon hear. And that I always worry that if I publish straight away would seem to be a subtweet to that editor, and it's not meant to be. I really want to make it clear, as I hope I do in the column, that the criticisms I have of editorial practice in here are not about any one editor or my views of that editor. I'm always grateful for editors that seek me out and ask me to work for them, produce writing for them. Even when it can't work out, I'm flattered and honored, and I don't take it for granted. But boy, oh boy, the stuff that's happening in contracts, as you'll hear, is terrible and getting worse. So without further ado, and on that happy note, here is Reasonable Agreement on the Crapification of Literary Contracts from doctoro.medium.com. I don't want to pretend that freelance writing contracts were ever great. But in the 34 years since I sold my first short story at 17, I've observed firsthand how manifestly unfair contractual terms have become standard and worse, non-negotiable. I started selling to magazines back in the 1980s, which were the dawn of corporate publishing consolidation. Magazines changed owners frequently as they were snapped up by new owners who in turn merged or bought out their competitors. Thank Ronald Reagan for neutering antitrust and allowing these mergers to be waved through. Back then, it was an open secret that each batch of new corporate overlords would attempt to crapify the contracting terms that the magazine imposed on its writers, and that the editors would push back in subtle, clever ways. There was the time that a major family of magazines was bought out by a corporate raider, whose lawyers demanded that the contracts be amended to grab all kinds of non-standard rights that writers had either retained or resold themselves, or that represented a fanciful kind of speculative ignorance about where the licensing opportunities were in short fiction. The new contracts grabbed rights that writers were often able to resell for enough to buy a couple bags of groceries, audio, translation, rights that writers rarely sold, but which represented huge paydays when they did, TV and film adaptation, and rights no one was buying or selling, theme park and action figure adaptations. Demanding these rights was both outrageous and stupid, and everyone, except the corporate lawyers who insisted on them, knew it. In particular, the editors who acquired fiction for these magazines knew it, and they came up with a great solution to this idiocy. All the new contracting terms were relegated to the contract's final page, and authors were quietly told that if they wanted, they could just tear that page off, sign the bottom of the penultimate page, and return the contract. But as magazine publishing grew more concentrated, corporate contract lawyers were able to consolidate their control over operations, creating non-negotiable contracting terms that couldn't be dispensed with by tearing off the final page, nor by lining out obnoxious clauses and initialing them. In the years since, these awful terms have proliferated. It used to be that when an editor offered me a freelance assignment, the majority of our discussion would concern the substance of the article or story. Today, we spend 10 or 20 times more energy on the contract, with the editor shuttling back and forth between me and the contract's people to see if they'll flex, and, if so, by how much. I've learned the hard way that failing to do this can burn editors, which is the last thing I want to do. 
Back in 2009, an editor asked me if I'd write her a short story for a giant, global, glossy, general interest magazine. She was an editor I'd worked with for years, and her birth at the magazine was a coup for her, a plum gig. The last thing I wanted to do was cause trouble for her. I promptly whipped up a story for her, and she loved it, and the magazine sent me a contract. One of the clauses in this contract required me to indemnify the publisher against all claims, including those they settled without consulting me. In other words, if some crank emailed this magazine, which was distributed in dozens of countries around the world, and insisted I'd wrong them and demanded a million dollars in compensation, the magazine could pay them a million bucks and then send me the bill, without ever consulting me, irrespective of the merits of the complaint. I did what I always do when a contract contains a clause like this. I amended it so that I would promise to indemnify them against, quote, finally settled claims in the U.S. and the U.K., the two legal systems I understood well enough to be able to promise that I wasn't breaking any of their laws. Normally, a publisher's contracts lawyer would just accept a change like this and initial it and sign. Not this time. It went all the way to the CEO, who flat out refused to okay the change. In the end, they told me they wouldn't be publishing my story, and I wouldn't be getting paid. This was outrageous, without precedent in my career or that of the editor, and in the end, my professional association had to intervene to get a 50% kill fee out of the publisher. This was idiotic. I have few assets to my name, and I had even fewer back then. Not only wouldn't I offer the publisher this indemnity, I couldn't. Practically speaking, I was 99.99% certain nothing I'd written contained anything actionable, but the publisher was reserving the right to settle claims that had no merit, and if I'd signed, I'd be contractually obliged to pay them back. This is ridiculous. This was a multi-million dollar enterprise with offices all around the world and access to legal advice for each of the jurisdictions in which it published. If the company was actually worried about legal exposure due to my work, the prudent course of action would be to consult competent counsel, not ask someone with no relevant legal expertise to promise them that it would all be fine, especially when that person had no assets that could be used to back up that promise. Signing that clause would give the publisher the right to ruin my life, but it still wouldn't protect the publisher from any liability. My assumption that the publisher would offer me a reasonable contract put my editor friend in a very awkward position and strained our professional relationship. I got more cautious, but I still slipped up. Last year, a major daily national U.S. newspaper asked me to write an op-ed about a litigious, sleazy, vindictive tech company's stupid legal threats. I did, and they published it, and then they sent me the contract, which asked me to indemnify them against all claims, regardless of merit. I told them I wouldn't sign it. I'm not an idiot. They'd asked me to write about a billion-dollar company with a history of vindictive legal threats against its critics, and then, after the fact, they wanted me to promise them that if they got a legal threat as a result, I'd take care of it? I mean, even if they'd been paying me more than the couple hundred bucks I got as a result, I wouldn't have signed it. They're the publisher with offices all around the world and a whole floor full of media lawyers. Why on earth would I agree to serve as their litigation target? The contracts person was distraught, and for good reason. They'd been told by management that the clause I was objecting to was non-negotiable. I pointed out that they'd already published the work and were in no position to force unreasonable terms on me. Given that they'd published ahead of a signed contract, I was within my rights to offer them a contract and insist that they sign it. All I was asking for was a fair and reasonable deal. 
The story had a happy ending. I got the offending non-negotiable clause struck, but once again, I put an editor who liked my work and asked for my contribution in good faith in a bind and needlessly burned a bridge. It was another reminder that I shouldn't accept any commissions without clarifying the contractual terms in advance. These days, I'm more careful. Editors change jobs, after all, and even if unreasonable contracting terms mean I can't work with them in their current berths, clearly expressing my contractual limits means that we can avoid the pain and trouble of working on a piece we both want to see published, only to have it killed by unreasonable contracting terms. Here are some of the contracting terms that come up again and again. 1. Binding Arbitration Waivers These are contractual terms that prohibit me from suing the publisher, no matter how egregiously they behave. Instead, these clauses would require me to present my case to a fake judge, a corporate arbitrator whose fees are paid by the publisher I'm seeking to hold to account, and cross my fingers. Binding arbitration was invented to help giant corporations of similar size avoid costly litigation, but Federalist Society judges like Anton and Scalia broadened arbitration doctrine so that today it is primarily used by powerful corporations to deprive workers, customers, and suppliers of the rights they are otherwise entitled to. There is no good reason for a company to insist on these waivers. Their primary use is to allow companies to rip you off and get away with it. I won't sign them, and honestly, shame on you for even asking. 2. Blanket Warranties Freelance writers aren't, usually, lawyers. It's one thing to ask a writer to say that, to the best of their knowledge, their work doesn't infringe on anyone else's rights, but it's another thing to make them guarantee it especially when the publisher is part of a multinational conglomerate with legal exposure all over the world. I can promise you that my work doesn't violate U.S. federal laws or California state laws, but only the publisher is in a position to know what other legal systems it is exposed to. If you've got a branch office in Thailand or the UAE or Saudi Arabia, I'm pretty sure that anything of mine you publish will expose you to legal liability there. And if you're worried about that, you need to talk to a lawyer in Bangkok or Riyadh or Dubai not a writer in Burbank. 3. Blanket Indemnities My insurance underwriter has been clear on this. They will not cover settlements that a publisher has unilaterally offered without a court ruling. Given that I have no substantial assets, I can't indemnify publishers for claims that my insurer won't cover. I can indemnify you against finally settled claims in California or a U.S. federal court. Otherwise, I suggest that you check with your own insurer, rather than trying to contain your risk by putting me on the hook for it. Not only is that grossly unfair, it's also pointless, since forcing me into bankruptcy won't actually get you the money you need to settle a big claim, it'll just ruin my life. 4. Confidentiality In more than three decades of freelance writing, I have almost never been exposed to a publisher's confidential commercial information. Still, it has happened. If your company plans on telling me its secrets and wants to be sure I'll keep them, then fine, we can have some kind of non-disclosure, but you need to precisely and narrowly define what constitutes confidential information, and no, I can't do that, because if I knew what your secrets were, they wouldn't be secrets. 5. Non-compete If you're commissioning a major feature on a new subject for me, then fine, I can see signing up to a limited non-compete, a few months, maybe a year, when I promise not to write on the same subject. But if you're commissioning me to write on the subjects I'm an expert in, which I write about every single day, no way. I mean, come on. 6. Rights For magazines and online publications, the standard deal is a limited exclusive publication right. 
six months or a year, say, and thereafter a perpetual non-exclusive right. That is, you can keep it on your website, but I can resell it, adapt it, or anthologize it. 7. Derivative works. If you want TV or film rights, that's fine, but you'll have to negotiate them with my agent at WME, and there will be a substantial payment, and you'll only get an option and not a buyout. Other rights, translation and conversion to other formats, are okay provided you actually plan on using them. I won't give you the French rights if you have no French sister publication or relationship with French publishers. Why would you even want those rights? This is basically the shape of a standard contract from the start of my career, but it's miles away from the boilerplate nearly every publisher uses today. It represents a fair deal, one in which risks and rewards are apportioned based on the relative contributions and capacities of both of the parties. A well-written contract is a thing of beauty, a way for all concerned to concisely and clearly express what they expect of one another. It makes no sense for a contract's lawyer to insist that a clause remain in a contract even though they would, quote, never invoke it. I take this contract seriously and plan to live up to my end. If there's something in it I can't or won't do, I shouldn't sign it. That's what every writer owes every publisher, a truthful and complete account of what they plan to do for the money on offer. It's a weird world when writers take publishers' contracts more seriously than the publishers do. Okay. I will probably talk to you next week before my first 4th of July as an American citizen. I may not, depending on whether I uh, take that day off. But in any event, I hope you have a great week, and it was lovely to chat with you, and I will talk to you again as soon as I can. You've been listening to the Cory Doctor Podcast, licensed under Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike US 3.0. Or as Woody Guthrie put it in another context, this song is copyrighted in the U.S. under seal of copyright 154085 for a period of 28 years, and anyone caught singing it without our permission will be a mighty good friend of ours, because we don't give a dern. Publish it, write it, sing it, swing to it, yodel it, we wrote it, that's all we wanted to do. Many thanks to John Taylor Williams for mastering. That's Rynex Studio, W-R-Y-N-E-C-K Studio at gmail.com. John Taylor Williams is a full-time self-employed audio engineer, producer, composer, and sound designer. In his free time, he makes beer, jewelry, odd musical instruments, and furniture. He likes to meditate, to read, and to cook. Talk to you next week.